Matthew 27, 45 through 66. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his, new, his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Heavenly Father, it is a, uh, it's a glorious day. It's it's it's. Palm Sunday, a day that we predominantly celebrate as uh, Hosanna, God with us, Emmanuel. We're excited about um, what this means. But God, as we as we come to you in Scripture, God, I pray that it would be uh, your Spirit's work alone, um, that you would take the distractions of maybe end of midterms or kids out of school or whatever may be in place, God, that you would just remove all those distractions and allow each of us to hear from you today, God, that we would be... Um, not just hearers of your word, but doers of it. And God, I pray that your spirit would just captivate our hearts with what you um, desire to do with each of us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is. It's, it's Palm Sunday, but because we've been working through Matthew for what seems like 18 years, um, we, uh, <laughs> we did Palm Sunday back in the fall. So today we are actually just going to continue our trek through the last week of Jesus' life. We started this two months ago. And it's a unique uh, a set of scripture because as, we, as we've kind of slowed down, I've encouraged each of you to, to look at the characters that are in the story and the history. Look at the individuals that, that point out different aspects of what God wants us to see and look at them and then see if there's any kind of relation to it or if you um, can identify with maybe one of the characters. And, and I've challenged you over this time that as we slow down to not just rush through the Easter or resurrection story because we're so good at that. We know what comes next. And last week we spent um, a good amount of time around the crucifixion that built up to this text, and then next week is, is resurrection, so we're going to celebrate that. But, but as, we, as we come to this, this set of scripture, what, what Matthew's been doing this entire time, I mean this entire time that we've been in the book of Matthew, Matthew has been laying out, asking and, and pointing out that, that Jesus isn't just a man, but Jesus is the Messiah. He is, he is the Messiah of God. He is, he is 
the king, the rightful king. And that is what Matthew has been laying out time after time. And so as we come to Holy Week, I want to slow down even more, and we're going to give you some stuff at the end of service. I'll talk about it. But we really want you guys to be intentional with your time this week. And, and like I said, most of us, we know what, what the end of the story is. We have an idea of where it is. But, but there's this unique section of Scripture, the one that Maddie just read for us, that most of the time, if you've, if you've ever spent any time kind of studying through or working through or listening to sermons on, it's kind of like crucifixion is heavy and you know, oh, there's Jesus' death. And then we just kind of blitz right to resurrection. But Matthew has this unique chunk of Scripture right in the middle of, of death and resurrection. And it's really interesting, of all the things that he happened, there's, there's so many things that stick out in this section that, that in, a, in a lot of ways, individually in and of himself would have felt really, really strange if you were experiencing that. And so if you can just, you know, put on your imagination, maybe back to your youthfulness where you can, you can kind of think it through, what would it have been like to be standing there on that day, to have been, to been standing in front of Jesus as he hung on the cross, and we, we, we have so many other characters in this. Matthew does a really great job of pulling in a number of characters. And you have really one of two responses when it comes to Jesus and the crucifixion. We see those that, that, that leave filled with shame and, and, and maybe guilt and, and without hope. And we see those that maybe start to experience for the first time hope. But there's really not an in-between response we maybe see a little bit of that from the disciples, but we'll get to that more next week. But ultimately, it's either you, you, you can't help but have your life altered in some way or another by what happens through Jesus Christ on the cross. And so what I wanted to do today is we're going to just kind of, it was a huge chunk of scripture. We're going to kind of point out a few of those individual things that seem really kind of crazy and big and then come out with what we think the point of it was. But um, It's interesting, if you think about it this way, like I have, I have kids and when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, like you know if you've ever gotten your kid a new toy? Like if I got the kids a new toy and Jen walks in the, in the house or whatever, it's not, hi, mom. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like, how was your day? It's like, I got a new toy, right? Like they're just super excited. I feel like a lot of times that's what we do with the resurrection. We don't really, we don't really experience what God has called us to experience through the middle ground between this, these three days of what seems hopeless, but ultimately these three days is, is, is where we find our hope. And so I want to I encourage you guys, some of the stuff you're going to hear today, uh, literally I couldn't reconcile some of the things that I worked through and studied through um, these last few weeks. And, and I want to encourage you guys to know that there's, there's, there's a really big point that Jesus is, is, is making. There's a big point that, the, that Matthew, inspired by God, is, is, is laying out, and it's there for a purpose. So don't just rush past it. So we, we, we get the story after Jesus has been crucified. We know that he was, he was hung up on the cross around 9-ish a.m. in the morning. Okay, so he's been put on the cross, and we now know um, it says at the sixth hour, that's, that's noon. They would, they would 6, 6 a.m. To, to noon is six hours. So the six hours, noon. So I want you to, to picture this. You are in Israel. It's, it's around the Passover time, which means it's a full moon season, so it's pretty light anyways at night, and then also during the day, the hot sun is out. And by noon, it's, it's getting pretty warm, and it's, it's getting pretty high in the day. And then at noon, or right around there, all of a sudden, darkness comes. And not the kind of darkness like, oh, look, that cloud just took over the sun, but a darkness that, that's defined better as night. And it happens at noon. Now, maybe it's just me, but I feel like I'd be a little intrigued by that. 
right? Like, I feel like if I was standing there at the crucifixion watching this horrific thing with Jesus or mocking him like most of the people were doing that were standing there, I feel like it would maybe lay a little bit of a mark on me. Like, wait a minute, this darkness seems weird. Well, now, I want to define this darkness. This is the first of many really miraculous things that happen around Jesus' death on the cross. And, and the darkness, it began at around noon and, and lasted till Jesus breathed his last. And so around 3 p.m. is when, when the darkness subsided. Now, again, it's important to know that the Passover was always around a full moon. So there have been some people that have tried to, like, debunk this and say, well, it was just an eclipse or something. Well, two problems with that. One is it's a full moon. Second problem is uh, eclipses don't usually last three hours, Okay. What we also have is we have some extra biblical writing, which I thought was very, very unique. We have some Roman historians that talk about and have written about this very darkness in their history. So they've talked about this day where in the middle of the day we see no light. And the way that this word is is said is the world. Now, we don't necessarily know of the world, but we know that in Rome they did this. We also see letters from those in Jerusalem. We have letters to, um, to Tiberius and they're acknowledging the darkness back and forth. So it's like it's an understood that, that they would have experienced it. And then we also have other writings, um, other first century writings talking about the darkness in the day that aren't in the Bible. So, so there's a lot of historians, believers, not believers, Christians, not believers, Christians, whatever, that have, have acknowledged this darkness that happened. What's unique about it is that anyone that knows a little bit of the Old Testament, Amos chapter 8, um, if you know the Exodus story, we know that darkness predominantly speaks of God's judgment or anger. Darkness shows up when he's trying to make something very clear that he's in charge, that he's in place, and something big is happening. It happened in Exodus when he's, when he's, he's proving to Pharaoh that, that Moses is his servant, and he's trying to free the Israelites. It happened in chapter 8, Amos talks at verse, I think, 9. Either way, darkness compelling most every single Jewish person knew that darkness meant not good. It meant the absence of light. It was this, it was this very, very clear, clear clear picture of something not good happening. Well, that shows up after Jesus has been on the cross for just, you know, a couple, three hours. And then it stays place until he breathes his last. Now, we don't know if it, like, right after he breathed his last, if the sun all of a sudden came out at 3 p.m., or we don't, we don't know what happens, but we know that the darkness was only in that place. So either way, what was it most to be, or supposed to be the brightest and, and most visible de- time of the day of the sun, there were three hours where it was gone, and it was dark over the land. And I mean dark. Some of you have maybe been to Alaska and you've experienced that like all day, day, or all night, <laughs> night thing. But picture like n- no light, no stars, no sun. And it's not like they had the beaming lights of all the signs on the road keeping things going. It was dark. And so here's this, this amazing moment of, of darkness. And, and what, is, what is Matthew doing? Well, again, I think what Matthew is is. Is, is compelling all of us to, to understand and to see in this gospel is that, is that Jesus isn't just a man. He's the Messiah and he's the king. And each of these individual things point that, that Jesus is God too. And so Matthew starts telling all of these different aspects of things that we see. And Mark picks up on all of them. In fact, almost all of them are accounted for in every gospel except for one thing that Matthew talks about, which we'll get to. And so you have this, this darkness in place. Now, I feel like if I was standing there and that darkness came, I feel like I'd probably go, hmm, this is interesting, <laughs> right? Like, maybe a little bit like, are we doing the right thing here? Like, is this, is this the way it's supposed to happen? But what's so unique is that the guards, the, the chief priests, the, the elders, the, all, the, all the individuals, Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus, all these people that we're going to pick up in the story, every single one of them, 
every single one of them are working according to God's word. And they have no idea they're doing it. The, the centurion guard that pierces Jesus' side because after three hours, the other two that were hung with him are still alive. And again, the way to, to end crucifixion was usually asphyxiation. So they break the legs with a big club and that would, the pain would hurt, but they would, they would die shortly after because they couldn't breathe. When they came to Jesus, they, knew that, they noticed that he was already dead. So we don't need to break his legs. And so, and so the other thing they would do to ensure that they were death is they would put a spear up in through the heart. And so that's what they're doing. Well, these, these Roman guards have no Jewish history, no Old Testament scriptures understanding, but in both of those things, by not breaking his legs and by piercing him, they've fulfilled two prophecies. And see, God is using these individuals along the way, and Matthew's pointing out these specific things along the way to say, look, God's in control. God's in control. And so God is in control of the darkness over the land. God has, has put this darkness in place, and it is, it is, it is present, and it is there, and it is, it is his will for it to happen. A uh, second thing that happens in this that's, that's very, very unique is, is, a, um, is, an, is an earthquake, a, um, the veil being torn, and then this uh, whole resurrection of the old saints that we're going to get to in a second. So there's these four really, really huge things. The people that are standing next to Jesus— the, the, specifically the centurion guards in that place, they experience the darkness and they experience the earthquake, but we don't really know if they experience the other two things. But the veil, what's unique and so provocative about the veil is that in, in, in Israel's time prior to Jesus being resurrected, the way we celebrate it, our only way to have celebrated God and to be in his presence was to go through the holy place of the temple. It was, that was where we did it. So I've talked about this before. You had the temple court where everyone could go, and that's where they probably were selling a bunch of stuff that Jesus sent them out. And then you had the, the temple of, um, of Gentiles, the temple of, of men, the temple of women, and you'd work your way all the way through there into the most holy of places. Now, the most holy of places, only the high priest was allowed to go in there one time a year. He wasn't allowed. And, and we get from Josephus, or early letters, that he talks about the veil, the veil that was in place between the most holies was 10 feet high and 10 feet wide and was incredibly ornate, really, really beautiful, really thick, and a bluish kind of color. And so it's this huge veil that would cover the most holy of holy places. In fact, today, no Jewish person will step on Temple Mount out of fear of standing where the most holy of holies would have been. And so you have, you have this, this veil that's separating essentially separating every one of us and every Jewish person and every Gentile person from God. And only the most holy of holy persons or the, the high priest could go in on the, on the one day a year to do the sacrifice and they would tie a rope to this person to make sure that if he died and did something wrong, they could pull him out and it wouldn't defile that. And that happened once a year. Well, right when Jesus breathes his last, we're told that it's torn completely in two, which is a really, really beautiful picture of what's going on is that what Jesus did for us in the cross not only did it free us and bring us hope, but it gave us access to God, not through a religious system. And not just us, but anyone. It gave, it gave, it gave access to God. In fact, the author of Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why can we draw near to the throne of grace with confidence? Because the veil is gone. Because Christ has given us a way to be there. So now we can step into the throne of grace. We can experience the throne of grace because of the veil being torn, because of Christ and what he's done. And Jesus, and God is saying now, no longer is it a system, no longer is it a religious 
place. And no longer is it, is it this, these things that has to happen. Instead, now you can approach me because of the righteousness of, great, of Christ that is put on to you who believe in him. And so the, the veil is, is torn, which is another incredibly huge miracle. Now what's unique about that is it happened around 3 p.m. Well, what's unique about that time is 3 p.m. is about when the slaughters of the lambs would happen for Passover meal. That three to six is kind of when they would do that. And they would be, in fact, there's a Kidron Valley that runs along the eastern side of the gate, which is, you've got all, Mount of Olives. You kind of look over the eastern gate of, of, of the city mount, the temple mount. The Kidron Valley is what runs through there. They would say that in, the, in Passover, that so much blood was spilled from those lambs that the valley would have been a, a, like a stream of blood in the Kidron Valley. At 3 p.m., the most holy of holy places, the temple mount was packed. Everyone's there getting their lambs, getting ready to have their meal together, and this is what's happening. At 3 p.m., the lamb of Christ is who's finally breathed his last. And so, so the temple mount's full. Now, again, those that are in Golgotha, or, or where Jesus is, being on, is on the cross, aren't on the temple mount. So those that are the, there mocking him, they wouldn't have seen that. They would have just heard about it later. Okay? Another crazy thing that happens. Well, another interesting thing that happens in this setting is, is, a, is an earthquake. Again, and the reason why I'm telling all this is, is important. It seems like, okay, we're just in class right now, but we'll get there in a second, I promise. 33 AD, we have um, knowledge, extra-biblical writing of, a, of, a, of an earthquake in Israel. So we have not just the Bible talking about this earthquake, but we have other sources talking about this earthquake that happens. Now, earthquakes would happen there, and that's not uncommon, but um, in in Israel, what they would do with people is when they would die, they would, they would wrap them and then they'd put um, high-smelling or aromic <laughs> uh, spices over them to keep the smell away and they'd put them in caves or, or these, these tombs and then the flesh would deteriorate. And then what they'd do is they'd move those bones into bone boxes. And today in Israel, you can see it. If you're standing there, there's thousands of them everywhere. And they're, you know, about this wide and about this, this deep and about this tall and they're above ground. And what they do is they just put all the bones of that person neatly into that box, and that's where they sit, and that's where they stay. And so these bone boxes are in place. Well, if an earthquake happens, well, obviously the tops, as heavy as they are, the tops would split or fall over. And so it says in this, in this scripture, it says that um, the tombs also were opened. Well, now, it makes sense that if an earthquake happens, that the, the tombs would open. <laughs> but Matthew goes one step further, and I want to, before we go there, I want to I talk about Martin Luther once. He has a statement that he wanted to understand, he wanted to come to a full grip of understanding how God could separate himself from God. The idea that, that Jesus was forsaken on the cross. And so Martin Luther said they have this time where he, do, he chose to um, like become recluse in his room and he's going to spend, all I'm going to do is study and come out with an understanding of this. And after an extended amount of time, he came out saying, I'm more confused than when I went in. There are certain aspects of God that we will never, ever fully understand until he chooses to reveal it to us in, in the new kingdom or we're just not going to care because we're going to be all about him. Like, there are just things that we are not going to be able to reconcile. This right here in Matthew is one of those things that, that a lot of really smart people are like, huh, all right, well, what does this mean? Now, we know that the Bible is, 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 is perfect. It's God's word, and we can trust it. But this is one of those things, and Matthew's the only one that has this, where we're like, okay, well, what specifically happened? And so as the tombs were opened, and then it says, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And it's a come here should be a period. 
Okay, it should be a period. So many bodies were raised. Now, I'm not sure what that looks like, right? <laughs> but, but could you imagine, like, just for a second, like, the tombs, and, and, like, we picture probably some, like, bones walking around. Like, it was different. Like, they were walking in, in a resurrected form. But then it says, and come, um, and coming into the Holy um, sorry, and coming out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection. That's why I said there should be a period there. After his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So these, these saints, and not, here's the thing, not all of the saints, but some of them are, are in place. And the reason why I think it's important that not all of them and some of them, I think that this is another way in which Matthew is pointing out that Jesus didn't just beat sin, he beat death. And we haven't spent as much time, we're going to go back after Easter, but chapter 24 and 25 talk a lot about kind of Jesus' second coming and resurrection, some of that stuff. So we'll spend some time studying that. But I think this is Matthew right now laying out, like, look, look, Jesus is about resurrection. Like, the whole point is that you and me today, in, in, in faith in Christ, that I may die tomorrow, or I may die the next week, but ultimately I will not die because I'm going to be resurrected with Christ because of my life being surrendered to him. And so we have this unique setting where these saints are kind of walking around, and I, I mean, I'm sure some of us are picking walk, Walking Dead, right? Like where they're walking. I, I don't think it was that, okay? <laughs> but, but the scene sets where the tombs are open and, and some are resurrected. And I think Matthew is pointing to the future hope that we have of resurrection in Christ. He's saying, look, this is, this is what's happening. And these are some of the Old Testament saints that, that lived a life of faith apart from understanding Christ, and then they've been resurrected with Christ. That's why Christ was resurrected first, and then they came out with him. And so we don't know where they went. You know, we don't know if they had like a little service together. Or, I mean, we don't know what they did, right? So they just, it just happened and many saw them. Okay, so we have this darkness. We have the veil. We have the earthquake. We have the resurrected. What's, what's happening in this setting? All of these things are, are laying out such a clear picture that what is happening is not natural at all. What is happening? Any one of us today would try and figure out, well, okay, who's, who, you know, we've, we've seen like illusionists or whatever, like, oh, how'd they pull that fast one on us? Like, how did they do that? Like, someone, there's something over the sky here, you know, like, we just got to find the spot. Like, we would try and figure out a way to, to get away from them. It's not like they had the technology that we have today, but, but any one of these things in and of themselves seems pretty miraculous. Altogether, creates a really, really unique response. And here's, here's what I want you to see. That you can't, you can't experience this and not be changed one way or the other. You can't, you, can't, you can't come to this with a true heart and say, okay, let me hear what this is without either choosing to say, okay, this is obviously supernatural and God is doing something miraculous and showing it, or walking away without, this is crazy and he's out and I'm done with this. And we actually see both of those at this at the cross. In fact, the Gospel of Luke tells us that everyone that was there after they experienced every single one of those things, they were walking away beating their chest and sad. That's a, it's, a, it's a term of walking away with shame and guilt. But you know what none of those people did in that setting? They didn't turn around and say, we did the wrong thing. They didn't turn around and say he was God and therefore we should have worshipped him. They just walked away in shame and guilt. Now we don't know if come Pentecost that something happened with those individuals, but we do have one really unique thing, and I think this is the point that Matthew's getting at. As we have out of the words of the most unlikely candidate, the very statement. And you guys, uh, maybe you heard it, you picked up on it, or either way, it's in, 
in verse 54. When the centurion, now centurion was a Roman citizen that was a Roman guard in place to be working with the, the praetorium. So he was a specific guard on site. So it wouldn't have been a Jewish person that was then forced to be in the guards. This was a Roman guard. That's important to understand because most Romans wouldn't have had any of the Jewish Old Testament understanding or bringing up to it. They would only know what they knew just kind of being in the land, occupying it. So the centurion of the, of the hundred, hundred guards. The Roman centurion, okay, he says, and the centurion and those who are with them. The Gospel of Mark just says a centurion, but Matthew includes them. Keeping watch over Jesus, they would have always kept a, a group of guards to watch to make sure that nothing happened or that someone tried to free him. Um, keeping watch of Jesus. Saw the earthquake and what took place. Now, and what took place? I don't know if that was the darkness or what Jesus had said, but and what took place? And they were filled with awe. Filled with awe, this reverential fear. That's the word that we're supposed to have with God, right? They were filled with that. And then they said, truly this was the Son of God. A Roman pagan person experiences all of that and says, this was the Son of God. Now what's unique about that is that he wouldn't have had any schooling or education on the Son of God. All he knew was what people were trying, what the Jews had been saying he had, he had done. He blasphemed because he claimed to be the Son of God. They, they, only, they only knew theologically about this much. But yet he, in this moment, in the climactic moment of Jesus and all these things in place, he utters the very statement that every single person that walked away beating their breasts should have said, this truly was the Son of God. The Gospel of Luke adds that he was innocent. This truly was the Son of God. Now what's unique about that is this Roman guard was one of the people that hammered the nails into Jesus' wrists and feet. This Roman guard most likely was in the praetorium when they were beating Jesus with the crown of thorns. He may have even been one of the guards that was spitting and mocking when you realize what God has done for you, you can't help but experience change. When you fully surrender that, you can't help but make massive declarative statements. I don't know if this, what's, what's so beautiful about this and the veil being torn is that every single non-Jewish person knew that they were somewhat of a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. But when we get in an instant, the veil being torn, access to God is now in place. And I want to say it this way. This is my own conjecture. I'm reading this. We got our first convert, right, right after the death. And here he is, a centurion, Roman pagan person. Says, yeah, it's the son of God. That's it. Jesus hasn't even been resurrected, and he's believing it. Now, I don't know what happened, but could you imagine if you came to that conclusion in the death and then spent the three days kind of in silence, and then heard about Jesus resurrecting? Could you, I don't, like, I don't know if, if you were, like, maybe it's just me. I feel like I'd be, like, happy and tear-filled and, like, in a way, like, amazed even more so. If you made the declaration just on his death, and then you realize that he defeats even death, how much more beautiful would that have been for that centurion guard? I was right. He is the son of God. Look at that, right? Like, there's, it would have been a transformative experience. I like to think that maybe the reason why the guard uttered this statement had nothing to do with the earthquake, had really nothing to do with the darkness, although those, those added to it. 
But I think you know what did it to him? Is that he never once in the spitting, the mocking, and the beating, never once did he see Jesus revile back. In fact, one of the seven statements that he would have been standing close enough to hear on the cross that Jesus said is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I don't know about you, but I can't help but think that that would definitely change my perspective of someone. See, I think the centurion understood what all of the chief priests and all the other elders and the, the Sadducees walked away beating their chest. They, they felt the guilt and shame. They knew that something bad had happened, but it didn't cause the change in their life. They were still too prideful or too arrogant to do it. And then another thing that's incredibly unique about this is that a hidden disciple of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, he's the one that goes to Pilate to get the body off of the cross. Now, the Jews had a rule that they wouldn't let crucifixions or they wanted death to be out over the Passover, especially on the holy Passover um, or, or the Sabbath, especially something as holy as the Passover time. And so Joseph, who we know is a, is, is a member of the Sanhedrin. Danny talked about this a couple weeks in the trial. The Sanhedrin were the people that like broke every single law that they uphold to convict Jesus. We also get from the Gospel of, jo of John that Joseph didn't agree with that conviction, but yet he was present in that setting. And then Joseph, and we get also, we pick up in the Gospel of Luke, Nicodemus, who we assume is he's most likely a part of the Sanhedrin as well. We don't, it's not for certain, but most likely. And we get those two individuals going to Pilate and requesting to bury Jesus. Now here's what's crazy, guys. God uses Joseph and Nicodemus, and he uses Pilate. Because Pilate wouldn't normally let them go. They had a, a burial ground that they would just toss people into, and sometimes it was an open ground and birds and stuff would eat it, or they, they'd throw them into Gehenna just outside of the burning pile. Like, like this was not normal for them. The crucifixion was meant to be all the way through so people would know not to make the same mistake. And Joseph goes to Pilate at the worst time ever. Right? I mean, the worst time ever. When they're trying to, to, to appease things, they're trying to make things right, and Joseph goes and pleads to Pilate and says, hey, can I have the body? And Pilate lets it happen. Why? Because God is weaving into the thread all of the prophecies that they're going to fulfill. So Jesus ends up getting buried with, in a rich man's grave, which is a prophecy. And he gets that because Pilate, well, lets him go. And Joseph, who is a secret follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, a part of the Sanhedrin, he couldn't have been overt about it because they would have booted him a long time ago. He risks everything and goes and makes it known to Pilate and anyone else and goes in, by the way, goes into Pilate's headquarters so he would have been considered unclean. He goes in there and then deals with Jesus' body, which would have made him unclean as well for the Passover. So G Joseph just goes for the gusto. Right? And he just goes in, makes himself unclean on, on a number of accounts, and then takes Jesus' body out. And you know what's unique is, is we know that John is, is, on, is, is near the cross at one point or another because Jesus has one of the seven things he says is a, a conversation with John to take care of his mom and how they're now to take care of each other. But at this point, the disciples that were over and that everyone knew was following him are nowhere to be found. They're gone. Yet a secret disciple is now making it very, very obvious who he's following. And so he goes and gets Jesus and puts him in the burial ground. And again, a prophecy is fulfilled. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy fulfilled in just this small section of Scripture. Why? Because Matthew's reminding you he truly is the Son of God. He is the one and only Son of God. He is both God and human. 
and it's amazing. Well, there's one conversation that I skipped over that I wanted to come back to out of that, and that's this little, um, little utterance that Jesus says. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's, it's a unique utterance. We, we, we take it from, it's a specific um, quote from the Psalm 22, a Psalm of David. Now, what's unique about this is that David wrote this Psalm some thousand years before Jesus is on scene. And when you read this psalm, you look at it, and it, it has things like talking about pierced hands and, and feet pierced. And obviously, David never was crucified. So he's, he can't be talking about himself. So a thousand years prior to Jesus being unseen, uh, David, inspired by, by the Holy Spirit, is, is writing down a prophecy that Jesus takes ownership of on the cross. Why does Jesus take ownership of this one on the cross? It's so unique. And, and scholars have, like, this is like I said, Martin Luther is trying to figure out, like, how could God forsake God on the cross? Like, how does that work? There's just some that we will never understand. But in this setting, in this setting, we understand very clearly that this, and I, I think the darkness is, a, is an example of that. The darkness that's in place is an example of God, in a sense, letting Jesus pay the full amount of the judgment due. And, and separating in that way. It's also unique, it, just in case you're wondering if God was in control, none of the Gospels say that Jesus died. You know what it says? He gave up his last breath. He was even in control of when he chose to breathe his last. That's why Jesus says, I don't, no one takes my life, I give it up for you. I lay my life down. God is, is in control of all of this. So Jesus utters this psalm on the front. And, and there's some, under, some misunderstanding of what he's trying to say, Elijah. Well, Elijah is very similar to the way you'd say, um, my God, my God, Elijah is very similar in Hebrew, but he most, most likely cried out in Aramaic. So that's maybe where the confusion is. But, but one of the individuals standing by feels like, oh, this is a big deal. So I need to, I need to give him some, some sour wine or some wine to drink some, some thirst. And everyone else is like, wait, let's see if Elijah comes. So they use it and turn it in for a mocking moment. But either way, he says this. So this begs a question, why, why did God forsake him? And there have been a lot of agnostics or atheists or people that don't believe in God or have tried to debunk or disprove the Bible that say that, the, that Jesus really did die on the cross because of this one statement, which I thought was so unique. And the reason why was because they said that if you truly were making this up, if this whole thing was a, like a, a fake thing, you were making this whole thing up, you wouldn't put in a statement that looks like Jesus, who you're claiming to be your savior and your king, has a moment of weakness. You wouldn't put that in there. You'd be like, no, he's stone cold, he's stoic, look, at he just took the whole thing, he's a rock star, look, it's amazing. But by him having this statement of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To even utter those words, first off, it's the only time that we get Jesus speaking to God as God and not Father. He's quoting the Psalm of David. And secondly, it shows, it shows this, this moment of like, is, is it a breaking point? Is Jesus, is, is Jesus finally breaking down? He seemed to be in so much control over this whole time, even through all the beatings and everything else. Even on the cross, he's asking for forgiveness of the people that are doing it to him. So a lot of um, scholars and, and commentators and stuff have said that they've seen a lot of people say, well, you know, if you look at the way any other religion has had their religious icon die, it's always in perfect bliss. <laughs> they were perfectly happy and everything was in order and there was nothing in place. And it's like, because it has to be perfect. And Jesus is, it is perfect. It fulfills every single prophecy that was written about him. Thousands of years beforehand and he's in place, in line. But he utters this psalm. And again, David was writing this psalm and, and it, without Jesus being crucified, the psalm is interesting. 
Because David seems to be lamenting about crucifixion to himself when he's not being crucified. But yet the psalm ends with this hope in the fact that every single person will praise God. Every single person has the hope and the chance to bring it. It, it, lends, it end, lends itself and ends with hope, with immense hope. And so the psalm is, is a unique thing. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to read the psalm. But before I read the psalm, I wanted to give us a chance to take communion. So the ushers are going to come and pass um, the communion stuff right now. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you surrender your life to Jesus, communion is what we do out of remembrance of what he's done for us. It's a way we look to not only the cross and what it means, but it's a way we look to the future hope in our life. And so I invite you as the, as the thing comes to, to, to grab it so you can take it. We'll take it together. But then if you, if you feel like you don't want to take it, that's fine. Just let it pass. That's great. And then what I'm going to do is, this seems weird. What I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn off every light in here, okay? Not yet because we can't see, okay? I'm going to turn off every light and I'm going to read this psalm. And the reason why I'm going to do that is because Jesus uttered these words in complete darkness. And he, he takes us to a psalm. And I want you guys to, to listen to this psalm. And this is one of those things that I had a, 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 a mentor once tell me, like, read the scriptures differently. If you want to read the scriptures differently, read Jesus into all of it. Help understand how Jesus is playing a role in this. And, and it's amazing how the scriptures are different. If you read this Psalm 22, picture David writing this down. He has no idea that this is exactly how Jesus is going to die. He's, I mean, he understands maybe there's uh, like the prophecies or whatever, but, but like literally he has, he doesn't know it, but he does this writing. He writes this down. And then we now come to Christ and what happens. And I can't help but, but think for us, for you and I today, some thousand years later, some of us are really, really in need of, of the statement that the, that the centurion said. Some of us are really in need to be able to say, like, he truly is the Son of God. And your life, you, your life is full of turmoil or mess or struggle or fights or quarrels or sadness or loneliness or brokenness or whatever it may be. And ultimately, you can beat your breast and walk away from Christ and still feel the shame and guilt without the hope. Or you can truly come to the gross, horrific side of the cross and say there's something beautiful coming out of that. And I don't get it, but you truly are the Son of God. Redeem my life. Change it. And so when you take communion, you take of the bread and the life, the body that was broken, and you take of the juice, which is, is symbolizing the blood of Jesus in the new covenant that we have. You do that not because you deserve it. You do that not because, well, you weren't there that day. Because if you were there, you totally would have believed it, right? You totally would have believed it. You would have been the centurion, and maybe you would have. But you take it because he willingly gives it to you. He gives it to you not because out of duty or anything else. This is the most unique thing. Why did Jesus do it? Why did Jesus follow God's will all the way to death? Well, the, the somewhat empty answer to that is like, well, to bring glory to God. And the reason why I say that's somewhat empty, that's true. He did bring glory to God. But it's not like he wasn't sitting next to God in heaven prior to coming on earth and not bringing glory to God. It's not like he's like, oh, man, I, you know, I'm falling short of my glory to God. Hey, dude, send me down. Make me a human. Let me do this so I can make, like, bring glory to you again. Like, no, that's not what happened. Ultimately, and this is, you have to be careful about this, but ultimately the reason why God does this and the reason why Jesus does this is because of us. Now, that's not the, the point of the Scripture, so please hear me on that. The point of the Scripture is Jesus Christ. 
why does Jesus submit to God's will in this? Because this is the one thing that he didn't have. That he was he all along created to have. Us in community with him. He created that and it was broken, it was messed. And so he says, no, I'm going to be willingly do this because, because of you. I'm going to submit to God's will even when it's painful, it hurts, and I'm about to pay the most horrific penalty to all of the sin in the world so that we can be in right standing with him. Again, it doesn't make this scripture about you. Please don't hear that. The Bible's not about you. The Bible's about Christ. But God and Christ in this amusing plan fulfilled every scripture set long, long before any of us stepped on the earth. And he paid every single price for us to its complete entirety so that we, so that I could stand before God, so that I could enter the throne room of grace knowing that here I am, I'm a mess. I still don't deserve it. And he's like, you're right, but that's okay. I've covered it. And Jesus is our advocate for that, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And all of that happens because of the declaration that the centurion said. He truly is the Son of God. He is not just going through the motions. He is not just a good person or a good prophet. He is the Son of God. He is both fully God and fully man. And in that instant, he felt the forsaking for all of us. Let me read this psalm and then I'll, um, we'll take communion together. To the choir master, according to the doe of dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You are holy, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a posture, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the forms of the wild oxen. I will tell of, of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All, who, all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you, come, from you comes my praise to the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek shall praise the Lord. 
May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember the, and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all, shall, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the, com- the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And just like that, Jesus uttered, it is finished. And we gain a, a bit of perspective in the darkness. This is why one of the reasons why we wanted to do sunrise service because when light shows up, it's, it's, it's almost hard to take in at first. It's, it's, it's offensive in a way where you feel like you, you, you want to step back when light breaks in that darkness. And if you picture the three days of hopelessness, how bright that light must have felt with Christ coming out of the grave. How bright that light must have felt. At first, you may have been shocked and wanted to, to pull back from it. But like anything good, when you sit in it, your eyes adjust. And you start seeing more clearly the light of God. So when you taste of this bread and this juice, you taste of, of not just some little ritualistic thing. You taste of the covenant that God has done everything to uphold so that we can take part in it. So in Jesus and that supper, just uh, the night before, the night before this all came to place, he broke that bread and he said, this is my body, it is broken for you. He said, eat this in remembrance of me. Similarly, we get the hope, not just in a broken body, but we get the real peace in life in the fact that his blood was spilled. Life is in the blood is what we're taught. And, and Jesus spilled every bit of his blood so that you and I could be new and clean and pure by surrendering to that. And so when Jesus spilled his blood, the last spear that went in and broke him down and the blood came out, all of that blood was spilled so that we could say that it is finished. It is done so that we could know fully it has been paid for, it is done. No longer can sin or death or pain or fear rule us the blood of the new covenant and in the new covenant we experience hope and peace in life and so when he took the cup it was the cup of redemption at that table he picked it up and he said this is the blood of my new covenant drink this in remembrance of me and he said do this as often as you meet together God thank you for your work on the cross thank you for um, not sparing any detail for us giving us the the clear evidence of your strength and your your sovereign power in and through the most unlikely candidates. It is amazing to me that that it's a, a centurion guard that that previously would have been mocking you for for being the son of God would have been saying it in a mocking form would have been spitting would have been making fun of the king and that yet they come full fruition not very long after the beatings and everything else that they truly utter you are the son of God. God, it, you, you can't experience that. We, sh- we, we can't experience that without seeing a hope in you or leaving in shame. And so my prayer is that every single person in this room would experience that hope in a more tangible and beautiful way. My prayer is that, that we would not fall short of, of um, seeing your glory, God. 
that we wouldn't walk away in shame or guilt, that we'd stand present recognizing and fully believing that you are the Son of God. And it's in you and you alone we have hope. As we get near to the resurrection, God, may we spend this week where your words jump out at us, God. May we experience your grace in more tangible ways than we've ever seen before, God. May we see hope in, in, in lives that seem hopeless. May we see um, courage in, in spots where fear rules. May we be reminded that no matter how long it takes, those around us that seem to be walking in darkness, it is finished and they have the ability to freedom and hope through Jesus Christ. It's in his blood that was spilled in his broken body that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.